Good morning, dear friends. Uh, So nice to have you in our church today. I think church world uh, usually doesn't do quiet and contemplation very well, do we? We're kind of noisy and uh, great this morning to be just be led to be still. I can tell you I've learned more about the Lord in quiet moments than I have in loud ones. And so thanks to Steve for leading and guiding us through that. If you're at our church this morning, we're grateful that you're here. Look around, you have a whole room full of people who have no friends with lake cottages. (laughs) Or, Or you would be there, right? You wouldn't be here. If you had a friend who had a lake cottage, you'd be sitting there with your feet in the water. And uh, maybe you do have a friend. You can go after church. Church is better than the lake cottage. Um, You're like, "Mm, have you ever been to the lake cottage? I don't think you have. Uh, I I hope that uh, you'll be encouraged in your faith. Uh, As we've been going through the Old Testament together, uh, this is our last uh, Sunday doing that. Cover the book of Nehemiah uh, here Uh, as the last of our historical study of the Old Testament. We started in Genesis and made our way to here. And then uh, next Sunday, we begin the book of Hebrews as a follow-up, the New Testament understanding of the Old Testament. And we've been trying to lay a great foundation so that uh, that makes a lot of sense. But there's three things as I've contemplated what I've personally kind of been reinforced in is probably the right word in our Old Testament study. Let me give them to you. Number one, God is in control. Um, the Bible starts in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, what? God did what? Created. Thank you. Uh, you're supposed to be alive here this hour, okay? Uh, this, this service is known for being the energetic crowd. Let's, let's pick it up a little bit right here out of the box. In the beginning, God created. The Bible then is the display of God and Him as the defining power of all things. There is nothing that he doesn't touch. There isn't anything that he is uh, not willing to remove or move in order to make things happen. You open your Bible, you read it, and you're like, wow, this is a declaration of the greatness of God. That sometimes he shows up in pregnancies. He shows up in, in pagan kings' lives. In fact, Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Isn't that interesting? I think that's been reinforced in my own mind as I've gone through the Old Testament again. I go, man, God has the king's heart in his hand doing whatever he wants to do with it. It's uh, very, very interesting. Uh, if you want to read a, a verse, we'll not go to it, but Ezra 6.22 says that very thing where he took a pagan Persian king and he turned his heart. Second, God is confusing. I don't know if that encourages you or doesn't uh, or discourages you that a pastor would stand up and say, I think God's a bit confusing. The things that God chooses is not what man would choose. The things that man rejects, God says, I like that. And so from the beginning, he starts picking people as leaders. For example, Abram or Jacob, who's the younger, or Joseph, who's the youngest, or Moses, who's this crazy man out in the wilderness, or David, who is not supposed to be the chosen one. And the things that man say are important, God goes, I don't think so, I'm going to go for this guy. And over and over and over again, what man rejects, God says, that's good for me. The last three characters we've studied in our Old Testament survey are Ezra, Esther, and today, Nehemiah. Ezra was a bookworm. Have you ever met a bookworm? They're usually not good for anything right? They don't know how to get out of their books. But Ezra didn't just study the law, he did the law. He didn't just do the law, he taught the law. So he used a bookworm. Last week we had Esther. Esther is a beauty queen. Who ever heard of God using a beauty queen? Who ever thought that a beauty queen could be used by God? Esther was. And today we meet Nehemiah. He's a government bureaucrat. There is no way God could use a government bureaucrat. They work for the enemy. Think about that for a moment. That should have been funnier than it was. (laughs) I'm going to leave it right there. These are unlikely heroes, you guys. So God takes a bookworm, a beauty queen, and a bureaucrat, and he goes, those are my people. Those are my leaders. Let me ask you something. Could he use you? Is it possible that what the world considers not very valuable, he considers extremely valuable? 
Do you look in the mirror and say, nobody would want me, I am worthless? You're just in the right place because that's the kind of person God uses. I think we sell ourselves short in being an instrument in his hand because we think we don't have much to offer. I think you do, and I think you need to discover what that is. Third, God is committed. No matter how foolish or evil humanity becomes, God is still at work. He's working out his will. He is sending his word. He is calling people to himself. He is relentless in his pursuit of his will in people's lives. As we've opened the Old Testament, I've seen these three things repeated over and over. He's in control. Yep, he's a bit confusing. And he's never stopped being committed to his purpose. All three of these realities are going to be true in the book of Nehemiah. And as we see Nehemiah uh, unpack his unique position as a government bureaucrat, we're like, how would God ever use a guy like that? And that's what the story of Nehemiah is going to be for us today. The 26th president of the United States is named Teddy Roosevelt. You might have heard of him. Uh, He was the kind of guy that could never get elected, I assume, today. If he ran in 2024, they would go, this guy's a... Yeah, nutbag. But anyhow, um, the people, he was divisive when he was president. And one day, uh, Roosevelt was uh, walking along, and one of his admirers yelled out, Mr. Roosevelt, you are a great man. And Teddy stopped in his tracks and turned to the man, and he says, No, Teddy Roosevelt is simply a plain, ordinary man, highly motivated. I'm going to introduce you to a guy named Nehemiah, who is a plain, ordinary man, highly motivated. And when you see the devotion of his heart meet the position of his life, I hope you'll be challenged to say this, I wonder if my heart could overflow in my sphere of influence, whatever that might be. Okay, let's take a look at Nehemiah starting in chapter 1. It's on page 3. 98 if you want to follow along in a chair bible and you're not sure how to get to nehemiah we're all on a bible discovery journey here and if you're at the beginning of that journey and it's all new to you how much fun is that find that Bible. if you don't own a bible take it home with you we'd love for you to have it um had one guy go can i take five yes take five give them to your friends give them to your enemies leave them on the bus seat You know, whatever you need to do. All right, Nehemiah's positions, he's actually, we'll see in this book, as you trace his life, he has three different positions in in this book. So first he's a cupbearer, then he's a builder, and then he's a governor. And the book falls down through him following through these three positions. So chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 8, he's a cupbearer. Chapter 2, verse 9 through chapter 7, verse 4, He's a builder. Chapter 7, verse 5, to the end. Chapter 13, verse 31, he's a governor. Perhaps the first thing we could say is that God's kind of leaders are adaptable. They are able to take their character, their devotion, their heart, and apply it in variety of circumstances. That might be a good description of you, I hope, along the way. First, Nehemiah is a cupbearer. Chapter 1, verse 11, the very last phrase of chapter 1, now I was cupbearer to the king. What does that mean? Chapter 2, verse 1 says, When wine was before him, I took up wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So Nehemiah's job was to taste the wine and the food before the king was given the food. Why would he do that? Somebody's trying to kill the king. They poison the wine. The cupbearer dies. Yay! Nehemiah's entire existence was to give his life away on behalf of another. He is a trusted companion of the king. You don't want a cupbearer that you don't believe in, do you? He might put the wrong thing on top of your spaghetti, right? And so here he is, a government bureaucrat, existing for someone else. That's basically Nehemiah's life. He is a slave to the king of Persia for the Persian king's purpose and delight. There are many scholars who think that he was a eunuch 
for the king's sake so that he would never be attempted with the queen. You can look eunuch up later in your Google world or don't, whatever you choose. Second, chapter 2, verse 9, Nehemiah becomes a builder. He trades in his cupbearer's outfit for a hard hat and he becomes a general contractor. Jerusalem and Judea need to be repopulated. Nehemiah's heartbroken about that. We'll talk more about that in a second. He comes with the king's favor, chapter 1, verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's praying for his time in front of the king. He got his favor. He did that in spite of being afraid, chapter 2, verse 2. Why, the king says, this is nothing but, uh, why are you sad? This is not, you're not sick. This is sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, Nehemiah said. In chapter 2, verse uh, 9, he goes out with God's hand on him. So think about the description of Nehemiah as the cupbearer as he transitions to builder. He has the favor of the king that he has prayed for. He has fear because of being in the presence of the king, but his good hand of his God was upon him, and now he puts his hard hat on in chapter 2, verse 9, and begins the construction of the walls. From chapter 2, verse 9, all the way through chapter 6, the walls are being built. And when you get to chapter 6, verse 15, it says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 50 two days it doesn't say whether he brought it in under budget but he brought it in under scheduled he over delivered and under promised when's the last time you had a contractor do that sorry glenn i'm not looking at you glenn's a contractor you can't get a bathtub replaced in 52 days in the united states this dude built walls around an entire city Come on, how do you do that? I was in a meeting, I don't know, a couple months ago, and we were talking about something, and this guy goes, in the meeting, goes, yeah, he's a GTD guy. I didn't know what that meant, but I pretended I did. Have you ever been in that meeting where someone brings stuff up, and you're not really sure what they're talking about? And, and so everybody else in the room knew what a GTD guy was, and I was the only one that didn't know what a GTD guy was, and I'm sitting there going, oh, man, I don't know what a GTD guy is. I'm going to fake it and see if I can figure it out. I didn't. And, and, and finally I goes, I don't know what you're talking about. GTD, he gets things done. That's it? And then they said, haven't you read the book? David Allen wrote a book called Getting Things Done. I'm like, it's a a bestseller in the business world because people don't know how to get things. Nehemiah got things done. Built the wall in 52 days. That's pretty good. Pat him on the back. The third section of the book from chapter 7 to to chapter 13 is Nehemiah as governor. And I want you to turn to chapter 5, if you would, verse 14 where it it, it introduces him as such. It says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years. Nehemiah was the governor of Judea and Jerusalem for 12 years' time. Remember, he went from being a cupbearer in another city in another country, taking care of the king, to being the builder who came and accomplished the construction in 52 days, and now he's appointed governor of that area that he helps repopulate, and he has to lead his people. He is seen as governor over and over, but I want you to go to chapter 8, verse 9, and it says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, Nehemiah used his position as governor to further the teachings of the Word of God in the people's lives. More about that in a moment. He had three different jobs in this uh, recounting of his life. Cupbearer, builder, governor. In each one, he exercised leadership, he exercised courage, 
He exercised a devotion to God that was on display for anyone who was paying attention. I'm going to give you three things that I think Nehemiah performed as a leader that if you are aspiring to be a leader, I think are really important for you. The first thing was this. Um, He respected history. He understood the past. He was able to look back and say, why was this this way? Why isn't it this way any longer? I wonder why they did what they did. I find young leaders are a little too energetic to make their mark and forget the person who made the mark before them. Are you following me? And so they tear down what the other guy did so that they can make sure everybody knows they did something. Nehemiah doesn't do that. He respects what came before him, and I think any good leader has to understand the past. I remember years ago uh, in church world, it's the only place I've been a leader, so I wished I could, I, actually I was a baseball coach, but the, you know, I could kind of intimidate the eight-year-old kids, so I could kind of rule over them. It was the eight-year-old kids' mothers that worried me, you know. Uh, anyhow, um, and we were having a conversation, a group of pastors. Oh, Sunday school's outdated. We don't do Sunday school anymore. What a silly thing it is to even think about that anymore. And I'm, inside I went, I wonder why Sunday school was ever started. Whose idea was Sunday school's not in the New Testament? Why did someone start Sunday school? What was the purpose behind Sundays? And you start doing a little thinking, and you come to this conclusion. Someone started Sunday school in order to train the children in their faith. Yeah, let's get rid of that. Maybe it can be improved. Maybe it is old. Maybe, maybe flannel graph isn't our strategy in the 20. 20- you know, 2023. Do y'all remember flannel graph? You guys don't know what flannel graph, all, all the young people, flannel graph. I, flannel's what you wear when it's cold outside. I, I, come over to the dark side of the old, all the old folks went, oh, flannel graph. I was the best flannel graph leader ever. He sticked a little Jesus on the board and he's sideways and, you know, oh, he didn't drown in the storm, but it sure tilted him over in the boat. It, Anyhow, sorry, 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 sorry. The idea, though, is we want to train our kids. Maybe we're going to lose something if we get rid of the past because we think we have such a swell idea now. Nehemiah respected that past. And then he anticipated the future. Every leader that I know has to have uh, the ability to see past what's happening right now. And you have to be a couple steps ahead and you have to look at the future, and Nehemiah has plans in here. The king comes, he says, king, I've got to go build the wall, and the king goes, well, what do you need? And Nehemiah goes, well, I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and I need this. And it'd be swell if you wrote me some letters so that I could hand it to the guy in the forest and say, give me the trees. And he goes, I'm not giving you the trees. And he goes, here's a letter from the king. And he goes, how many trees do you want? Right? And he planned all that ahead of time. He anticipated what he was going to need. Good leaders have to anticipate the future. Now, if you have a comprehension and a respect for what's happened in the past, doesn't mean you have to do everything they've done in the past. Just understand why it's there and how it might be tweaked for present. And you can anticipate the future. You still have a present. You have to have great courage. And if you don't have courage in the present, you're not going to get things done. It will not happen. That's him and his position. Now, his passion. And he has two of them. And he had great devotion to God. As Nehemiah, uh, uh, we are exposed to him as the king's cupbearer. What we don't understand and we don't see is that Nehemiah is dedicated to the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, it happened in the month of Chislev, the 20th year. I was in Susa, the citadel, and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who'd escaped and survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem's broken down. It's destroyed by gates, uh, by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was 
continually fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When Nehemiah encountered life, he encountered life through his devotion to God. When he heard things were bad, his first response was, I've got to pray. I, I confess, I think often my first response is, I have to do. Do you know what I'm talking about? This man, when he got squeezed by life, fell to his knees and begged God for help. His dedication, his commitment, his resolve, his determination was formed there with his face in the dirt. Chapter 2, he gets before the king. It says in verse 2, he's very much afraid. And in verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should, my face, why should not my face be sad when the city and place of my father's graves lie in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said, what are you requesting? So I prayed. Uh, interestingly, uh, most of the theologians call this an arrow prayer. I've never heard that term before. Uh, I think what they mean by that is there wasn't any time for Nehemiah to get flowery and, and, and he could only shoot off, help me, Lord, right? Because he's answering a question while he's praying, kind of like I am right now, asking God to help while I'm talking. It, it is a Normal response to life, because life will bring circumstances to you that you're like, oh Lord, please help me while I'm encountering this very moment. That was Nehemiah's uh, go-to move. Chapter 4, opposition to the building uh, of the wall comes up, and he says in verse 8 that they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion, and, and we prayed, and we set a guard to protect against them day and night. Communication with God was high on his list. As he encountered life, as he lived out his existence as cupbearer, as builder, as governor, it was accompanied by his devotion. He did not attack any one of his responsibilities to the people around him without first consulting the one who made him. And that consultation shaped and formed his heart and soul so that he would respond correctly, so that he would have the courage he needed to have. You guys, we need to be firing up more arrow prayers, I guess. You encounter things all day long. Don't you need a little help? Lord, it would really be great if you helped me with this one. Right? And it may not be any more than that, but it puts on display the devotion of your heart, maybe more for yourself uh, than anything else. Um, Chuck Swindoll, in his book, Hand Me Another Brick, says, I'm going to give you four benefits of stopping to pray. Can I share those with you very quickly? Uh, First, prayer makes me wait, slows me down. Second, prayer clears my vision. It it does. It gives you the ability to kind of Grab hold of it. Third, prayer quiets my heart. And maybe the fourth one that I love, prayer activates my faith. Do you know what I see in Nehemiah when he prays? I don't see passivity. He prays, and then he does something. He doesn't think walking by faith means doing nothing. How many times do we say, well, I'm just going to leave it to God. I'm going to go by faith. Faith means you get off of your knees. You're welcome. I actually told folks last hour I wasn't going to use the word knees because I was on the internet last hour, and I can say anything I want this hour. I'm not any. Anyhow, when you get off of your knees, or however else you posture yourself, do something. 
Let the devotion to God stir your heart to attempt great and difficult things. You should come up out of that prayer experience going, I am not alone. I'm not even in the minority. I have the creator of the universe on my side. I can do this. The second half of Nehemiah's devotion is seen in chapter 8, where when he becomes governor and the land is settled, he brings Ezra the priest in and says, teach us the word of God. And that's what happens in chapter 8. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. They told uh, Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded. And so he does that. Go down to verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. And then when when he opened it, the people stood. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces in the ground. Who knew you could raise your hands and put your head down at the same time? In verse 9, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the Levites, they taught the people, uh, taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord. The devotion to God showed itself in communication with God and communication from God. Yes, they were talking to him, but they were also receiving from him. I keep trying to figure out if there's a more clever way to help you grow in your spiritual faith than say this. If you would learn how to talk to God and you would give time to reading his word to hear from God, you will grow. There's got to be a more clever way. Doesn't there? If you will listen to a podcast and watch a video. Anyhow. Second, his devotion to the people. If you go back to chapter 1 again, he hears about the people in verse 4. I heard these words. I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He then would get a display of his prayer. But what broke his heart caused his heart to reach up. When his heart was broken for the people around him, he decided, I want to reach out to them. So let's go to chapter 5. There's a great, arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. By the way, if you're in leadership and it's the wives who show up with the brothers, now you got something. Pay attention. You with me? Wasn't just the brothers showed up, their wives came. When the wives come, you better get busy. Anyhow, uh, there were those who said, well, our sons and daughters are many. We like to let it get grain. We, get, we need food to keep, eat, and alive. And there are those who said we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. There are those who said we've borrowed money for the king's tax, 9% interest. Just saying. Our flesh is as the flesh of brothers, our children, and yet we're forcing our sons to become slaves. But it's, it's not our power to help it. Other men of the fields have our men. And, and, and I, verse 6, was very angry when I heard these words. And I took counsel with myself. Isn't that a great line? I was really mad, so I counseled with myself. And I says to myself, self, this is bad. And then he hammers them. And he confronts them with great courage. And he, he, he says, you should stop this. And they said, okay, we'll stop it. And uh, he looks at them, in verse 13, he says, I shook out the fold of my garment, and I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise, so may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, praise the Lord, and the people did as they promised. And then verse 14, Nehemiah becomes governor. He gets a promotion. He's in high places. He's a man of authority, of power, of wealth, 
of prestige, he gets invited to every ribbon cutting. You with me? What does he do as leader? Watch. From the time I was appointed governor in the land of Judah in the 20th year, uh, the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. I will not put undue burdens on people for me to have my pleasure. He then recounts how he didn't do anything to hurt the people. This man was devoted to the good of those around them. This politician was actually a servant of the people he governed. And I know, dear young people, you've never heard of that before because we haven't seen that in our country in a long, long time. I think the saddest, I've got to get away from the pulpit. I probably shouldn't even hold my Bible while I say what I'm about to say. But again, not on the internet. I got a shot right here. I can take it. Are you not sad how politics has become a way to become very wealthy in our country? Aren't you not sad that people in power use their power for themselves and not for the people? Aren't you sad that they lie to us continually? They don't even believe what they're saying. They just say it so they can get more money for themselves. Are you not irritated? Thank you. I feel better. I have no solutions, but I feel better pointing out the problems. But Nehemiah as governor, why was he like this, you guys? Because he was a man of prayer. In in fact, let me see if I can find it in here. Um, Verse 15, he said, The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people. They took from them daily rations of 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because feared the Lord. What an amazing statement from a man in power who said, I'm not as important as the people I govern. I am not going to accept injustice by the wealthy as they oppress the poor. This is unacceptable, and I will not participate in it. You know why? Because I fear God more than man. Um, Now, I want to marry these two together. In, In number three, and I'm going to say, Nehemiah his position, and his passion together. Are you ready? So a passionate cupbearer. Let's go back to chapter 1. It happened in the month of Chislev, verse 1, verse uh, chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, the month of Nisan, the 20th year. There's four months between those two dates. During that time, Nehemiah mourned and wept and fasted and prayed for four months. It wasn't a 15-minute excursion. It wasn't a one-day absence of food. This man committed himself to following and pursuing his heart for God in the pain of his people, and he did it for months. And so as those four months pass by, we see his great passion for God accompany his position as a cupbearer. By the way, just before I dive into the details. You guys, your passion for God should accompany you to your workplace. What we're going to see from this man is whether he's a cupbearer or a builder or a governor, he was a principled man on God's word and a dedicated man to God's glory, and it defined how he led every step of the way. He put his life on the line for others. He comes to the king in chapter 2 and says, King, um, I know I'm sad, and I know I'm not allowed to be sad. You see, Nehemiah's life was given away. His feelings were irrelevant. The only feelings that mattered were his bosses. And so I'd never been sad in his presence. Do you think it's because he never had indigestion? He got over it and put on a happy face because that was his job. And this day he's sad. And the king goes, why is your face sad? 
I've not seen this. And then it says, I was very much afraid. I think Nehemiah is scared for two reasons. Number one, this could be the end of his life. The king go, I don't need any sour pusses around. I want, I want jokers. I want jesters. I want happy people. I don't like seeing you sad. So he was scared it could have cost him his life. But I think there might have been something else going on too. I'm speculating a little bit. Do you, do you mind me speculating? For four months, he's fasted and prayed. For four months, he's sought favor with the king. Chapter one, uh, what was that verse? Uh, was it 11? Yeah, chapter 111. He fought favor with the king. Guess what? The thing he'd been praying about, fasting about, thinking about, rehearsing, showed up. Have you ever had that moment where you're supposed to have that conversation with someone that you've been thinking about and you know you're supposed to do it, but you just don't want to do it because you know it's not going to be very tasteful? Have you ever had that experience in your life? I don't want to talk to this person. I hope that I never see him again in my life. It's a shame that she's my wife. You know, you know I, I just don't want to talk to her again. Right? I think that's what's going on. I think he's very much afraid because this is the moment he's been praying for. God has now swung the door open, and he now has to have a life-defining conversation with his boss. I was very much afraid. By the way, I would suggest to you, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to face your fears. And from his devotion to God, he goes to him and he gives the speech and it defines his life as a cupbearer. He puts on display God's courage before them. As a builder, chapter 2, verse 11 I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. I rose up in the middle of the night, and there were a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had put in my heart to do. There was no animal with me. I went out by night to the valley gate and the dragon spring. I, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem. They were broken down. I went to the fountain gate and those other places, and I went up in the middle of the night, and I returned, and all the officials, verse 16, didn't know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not told the Jews, the priests, or anything. And then I said to them, let's go build. And then I said to them, we can do this. He goes from solitude to inspiration. So in verse 17, you see the trouble where in Jerusalem lies in, in ruins. Come, let us build the wall that will no longer suffer derision. And I told them that the hand of my God was upon me and all the words that were spoken to me. And they said, let's rise up and build. And they strengthened their hands for the good work. And Nehemiah takes his passion for the Lord. He applies it to construction. And, you, and, and then the opposition shows up everywhere. These two rascals, Sanballat and Tobiah. You might have met them in an ABF upstairs last hour. They're in every church in America. They're probably here right now listening to me. Sanballats and Tobias, they're always there complaining and whining and telling you what they can't do and you're never going to get it done and what an idiot you are and how foolish you are and do you have any idea what you're doing and they come and they pile on and they pile on and they pile on and Sanballat and Tobiah become the, the, the thorn in the side so to speak and they're in chapter 4 and they're in chapter 6 and they're in chapter 13 they're everywhere and Nehemiah doesn't like them And they show up in chapter 4 and cause trouble. But did you see chapter 4, verse 6? So we built. We built. They opposed us. We built. They showed up. Chapter 4, verse 15. Our enemies heard that it was known that God had frustrated them. We returned to the wall. Chapter 21. We labored at our work. This man had the courage of his soul to stand up as a builder and make a difference. In World War II, uh, Nazi Germany's coming after England. You might have heard the story. There's a little chubby, cigar-smoking fella in charge of England named Winston Churchill. He gave that great speech, we'll fight on the mountain, wherever the cause may be. You, get, you remember that speech? He told the French, he says, listen, Whatever you do, we're fighting alone, even if you won't join us. The French prime minister and his generals, after Churchill left, said this, in three weeks, England will have their neck wrung like a chicken. On December 30th, 1941, Churchill, who heard this, 
stood up in front of parliament in England, and he said, the French said we'll have our necks wrung like a chicken. Some neck, some chicken. And they never did wring their necks, did they? And he took and inspired a nation to stand at overwhelming odds, and they never fell. Nehemiah grabs these builders, and he says, we're going to do this. And by chapter 6, verse 15, on the 52nd day, under budget, I'm just assuming, and on time, the wall was built, and he went into the general contractor hall of fame. And he is the only contractor in there. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry, Glenn. He was also a passionate governor. Projects have three phases to them that I've experienced. There are beginnings. You have ideas. Hey, what, what, what if we did this? And that idea comes and then becomes something that um, um, is completed. Hudson Taylor said, uh, I've noticed whenever God's hand's at work, there are three phases, impossible, difficult, done. Um, I've experienced impossible. You're sitting in it. I've experienced difficult. You're also sitting in it. I've never experienced done. I don't even know what done is. When are you going to be done? I don't know. I guess when you visit me in Lindenwood, I'll be done. <laughs> Lindenwood's a cemetery, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> letting you know. But it's not hard to start something, you guys. A lot of people start things. It's way more difficult to complete something. But chapters 7 to 13 are about what happens after it's completed. And I find that to be the most challenging of all. And, and it's not so much about starting and completing something. Now, how do you grow and maintain something that's been completed? Does it have longevity to it? That's yet to be learned here, isn't it? I think we're doing okay. But Nehemiah here in chapters 7 to 13 comes back after going to the king in chapter 13 and he finds his territory a mess. Tobiah in chapter 13 verse uh, 4 has moved in, 4 and 5, has moved into the temple. Do you remember Tobiah? He was in that ABF with Sam Ballot. He's the troublemaker. They built him a house. They cleared out God's utensils and put the... How's Nehemiah going to respond to this? Let's read. Verse 8. I was very angry. And I threw out all of Tobiah's furniture. And then I gave orders. They cleaned the temple. They cleaned the tent chambers. I brought back through the vessels of the house of God. It's grain offering frankincense. And he keeps walking around this province that he's overseeing, and everything's a disaster, and he's angry. Verse 14, remember me, O God, concerning this. Don't wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and my service. Verse 23, in those days I saw the Jews who were married among the women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. They couldn't speak the language of Judea but only the language of each people, and I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat them, and I pulled out their hair. He was a great pastor. <laughs> and I made them take an oath. Stop it! You get the chap into chapter 13. He says, Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. I established the duties of priests, Levites' as work. Provided with thought. Right. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Nehemiah took his passion for God, his love of people, and every situation he applied it, whether he was a cupbearer or a contractor or a governor, he had principles that guided his life.
Man for a leader with some principles. Let me give you seven things that a great leader has from the book of Nehemiah. By the way, I've read a bunch of books on leadership. I haven't read the Getting Things Done book, but I've read a bunch of books. I've been to the Global Leadership Summit a few times. Uh, The quest to be a good leader is uh, fleeting at best, and sometimes you get it. I've never found anything, if you are interested in leadership, I've never found a better book on leadership than Nehemiah. It's not even close. Here, let me give you seven qualities. Here's the first thing. He was a confessor. I'm going to give you three C's, three P's, and one S. All right? He was a confessor. He was willing to confront his own sin. You guys, brokenness is highly underrated. I'm going to say a very controversial thing now. You ready? Guilt is a great change agent. We have gotten to the place where guilt is something. We should never feel guilty about anything. Are you kidding me? Have you met me? I should feel guilty about a lot of things. We have anesthetized our conscience, you guys, till we stop feeling. God never intended for your conscience to stop poking you and saying, You're an idiot. You're an idiot. You're an idiot. Have you heard? You're an idiot. And when the Lord in his kindness puts his finger on your idiocy, if you will just turn to him, your life will change. He was a confessor. He realized what he was wrong about, and he was willing to own it. Number two, he was courageous. We've seen it over and over, haven't we? He went to the king when it wasn't, could have cost him his life. He stood up to the opposition. He faced his fears, and he was bold in every way. What a great quality. Leaders need to be courageous. Third, he was a collaborator. There are lots of parts of this book we didn't even touch today. Let me just list the lists. Chapter 3, chapter 7. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 26. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 26 are all lists of people who followed Nehemiah's leadership and they participated in the great cause of the living God. He didn't do it by himself. He didn't do it for himself. And you go back and you read people from all walks of life Beauty queens, bookworms, choir leaders, and they all showed up and participated in the great work of the living God. Way too many leaders are about themselves, building a reputation for themselves. A good, great leader brings people along with them and says, let's do this together. The whole book of Nehemiah is in a a review of what it is to bring people together. Collaboration. Uh, Four, he was productive. I already talked to you about he gets things done. I love chapter 4, verse 9, where he says, And we prayed to our God and we set a guard. He didn't just say, Lord, please protect us. And then go, I'm going to set a guard now. This isn't a lack of faith. I'm counting on you protecting us through the wisdom of having a guard. He did stuff, you guys. I wrote down in my notes, this may be unfair. Consultants talk. Leaders do. Number five, he was principled. His life was defined by God's truth and his truth applied. This is what we're lacking in our politicians today, if you don't mind me saying so. They have no principles. They have no guiding uh, uh, direction in their lives because they don't believe in truth. So the only truth is, what's best for me? 
boy, if you find a godly leader who's principled, you're going to find a governor. You're going to say, I want to live in that state. I want to be a part of that organization. Number six, he was persevering. Opposition came, struggles came, setbacks to came. And then I wrote in my notes in big, bold letters, it's too soon to quit. Is God still on the throne, class? Does he still answer your prayers? Is he still the mighty God who's in control of all things? Is he? Because if he is, it's too soon to quit, right? Let's not give up. Perhaps in America, it's time for us to have some hardships as Christians. So be it. It doesn't mean he's less on the throne than he was when we were in prosperity. As a matter of fact, prosperity is a more difficult trial than opposition. Prosperity lulls you to sleep. And you think you're godly because you got a bunch of stuff. Number seven, probably the best for last, he was submitted. I think good leaders are, first of all, great followers. I think if you don't find a leader who is committed to something greater than themselves, you have a problem because they will be committed to only what's best for them. And here we have a leader who is submitted to the hand of his living God wants to praise and honor him above all things. Here's our man, Nehemiah. He's a guy worth thinking about, worth following. This book deserves way more attention than I just gave it. So I, I lend it back to you and say, it's worthy of your reading. It'll teach you how to get things done. Hmm? The close of it is this, too. Next Sunday, we start the New Testament's understanding of the old with the book of Hebrews. And as great a leader as Nehemiah was, Jesus is way better. And we're going to take an in-depth look at how he's better than anything we've studied to date. I hope you'll come back. Let's pray. Father, your grace has been upon us this morning. Thank you for sharing your word. Thanks for Nehemiah's life. Help us to be as devoted to you, to people who are experiencing injustice as he was. Make us principled people pursuing what is right and true and godly and not just what's beneficial for us. It is an awesome prayer for us to utter to you scares us how it might be answered. Give us the courage to follow where you guide us. Amen?